Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome back Dave Petromala to the Philacrosophy podcast. Dave's one of the greatest players of all time and one of the greatest coaches of all time, former Johns Hopkins head coach and currently working for Brendan Kelly as a lacrosse advisor for Legendary Lacrosse Group, works alongside of Dave Cottle and the new acquisition of Spencer Ford. Really excited to have you on the show, Dave, and catch up with you. Yeah, great to see you again, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. So uh, first of all, um, I want to say congrats to the boys. Uh, big deal for them to be able to head down to uh, Tar Heel Nation. Give us a little uh, sense of how you're feeling and how they're feeling about that opportunity. Yeah, you know, thanks. Uh, as you know, uh, all too well as a, a coach and, and a father going through the recruiting process from that end, or, or I should say this end, is a little bit different. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a uh, great learning experience for me. Uh, obviously, I was excited for the Twins uh, to have the opportunity and to have positioned themselves to, to have coaches uh, across the country interested in, in talking with them and, and having them attend their school. So that was exciting. It was nice to get to know some other coaches a little bit. Um, and, and quite frankly, it was a, a great learning experience to see how others, um, you know, approach the recruiting process and, and maybe more in particular, how they approached it during this uh, really challenging COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, you know, the tools that they used, uh, you know, how they handled, uh, you know, the, the student athletes, the boys, uh, how they included the, the parents. So I, I have nothing but great things to, to say about uh, our process and, um, like you, I, I tried to be as involved as little as possible. Um, you know, you know, I've always said as a coach that a, a recruit needs to own their process. 
Um, so I wanted to make sure I, I took my own advice and, and, and allowed my sons to do that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I learned was about my kids. And, uh, you know, I learned that they, uh, they're a little more mature than you, you might think. Um, they were a little bit more prepared for it than maybe I thought um, and, and way more thoughtful than I ever thought they would be. So uh, all in all, a great process. And I'm uh, thrilled to have them going out to play for, you know, a great group of men. You know, uh, Joe Bresci's a great guy, um, a wonderful coach and a terrific human being, Dave Metzbauer. Uh, I, I, again, just like Joe, a tremendous human being, and Kevin Unterstein. So, you know, from the uh, uh, the point of playing for good men, that was the first priority, uh, to go somewhere where they'd be afforded the opportunity to grow as men, and then to play at a, uh, an institution academically like Carolina, and then uh, to be in a place like that is, uh, you know, is a blessing for our guys. Totally. Uh, Coach Bresci and staff, as good as it gets. Chapel Hill, as good as it gets academically as good as it gets. I mean, it's a, it's a total home run. Yeah. You know, it wasn't quite the path we uh, had planned on in the younger years, you know, and I actually think that was their greatest challenge, uh, you know, was switching gears. And I, I think they you know had this path planned and uh, you know, were comfortable with kind of how things were going to go for them if they got recruited, um, you know, and, and then they were going to, you know, follow this path. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I left, um, you know, that changed. And I think they had to do a complete 360 and now really start to consider other schools and, uh, and their eyes were opened up. And as I said, the coaches were great. Um, you know, their approaches were, were first class and, uh, and we were really grateful uh, for, for their time, their interest and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and what we were able to learn about each place. It is so interesting from the professional perspective, you as a career lacrosse coach and great recruiter to see how other people attack it, what they do, and to be able to sort of step back. And you're judging it a little bit because your kids are involved, but you're also judging it on a sort of professional level of, hmm, that was pretty cool. Or, oh, I, did, I wonder if I do that too. Are there any sort of takeaways that you got um, that either reaffirmed things you already believed or gave you new ideas? Yeah, you know, a lot was reaffirmed. And, uh, you know, when we recruited uh, and our staff recruited, Bob Benson, Bill Dwan, Seth Tierney, when we were all together, we, we always tried to make it relationship driven. We tried to be as personal as we could get. We tried to, to delve as deep as we could into that relationship. Um, you know, and as you know, when the recruiting timetable changed and we started recruiting guys that were just finishing eighth grade and beginning ninth grade, um, you know, developing those relationships was challenging. Getting to know those kids was really uh, challenging, or at least getting to know them well enough before you were ready to jump and actually take them as members of your family and your program. Uh, so it, 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 I really enjoyed, um, you know, I, I found myself not only taking notes about each school, but taking notes about how the coaches were approaching Recruiting, and I was so impressed with how personal uh, all of them made it. Um, you know, how each school sells itself is, is obviously very different. Every place has got their strengths and weaknesses and, and plays toward one and away from the other, uh, as we did, uh, you know, when I was at Cornell and Hopkins. Um, but I really, uh, I was really interested to see what would happen during COVID and, and how the recruiting process would unfold. And in all actuality, I, I think 
Um, it afforded coaches an opportunity to get to know these young men actually better. Yeah. Um, since very few of them were knee deep with their teams in, in fall practice, or, or if they were, fall practice was very different or looked different than it would normally look in terms of uh, the calendar and time commitment and hours uh, committed to it. So I, I think a lot of these coaches had more time yeah. on their hands and were able to actually reach out um, and delve deeper into getting to know these young men and getting to develop a relationship with them. Um, you know, and uh, I was really impressed how, how some of them handled things te technologically, yeah. um, you know, and the tours that you got, and the presentations, uh, all things that, uh, you know, we felt like we did a good job with when, when, when I was coaching, but there are things you can do better. And there were a lot of lessons learned and a lot of little tidbits that I took away that, you know, hopefully at the next stop, we'll be able to, to put to good use. Uh, but I know um, they benefited my two boys and, and I'm certain if they benefited mine as they worked with other, other young men, they were beneficial to them and their families as well. Yeah. So interesting. What are your thoughts about their actual preparation and, and evaluation? I, I feel like without the live viewing there's issues as it relates to being able to see certain things like, you know, actual size and speed and burst and the level of competition and communication. Um, but I also think that so many times we, as division one coaches relied on that almost too much. And that more time with film actually is a really healthy thing to be able to really do your homework on an athlete. I'm curious to get your opinions on that. Yeah, you know, I actually think it's been a positive. I'm a big believer in the in-person evaluation. I loved it. I loved the chance to to get up close near the guys and, and see and feel the size and strength and um, intensity or maybe a moment's lack thereof um, of the games and, and of the competitors and the players. Uh, but I actually do think, Jamie, you know, you look at this pandemic and I've looked at it one way and one way only. And it's the, while it's challenging and difficult, it's an opportunity. You know, I look at my situation uh, after leaving Hopkins and you can look at it as a real challenge or as a new opportunity. So I, I've looked at these things as an opportunity. And when I look at the recruiting component of it, you know, I, I, I see the ability to maybe do more than we normally would have. So uh, you know, you've been in the game as a coach. You know what it's like to run the field to field uh, and game the game and leave one field at halftime to get to another game and catch the second half and then go all the way back across the, uh, you know, the event grounds and get to a third game. Um, and you're going back and forth. And, and a good portion of your time is spent running back and forth when the beauty of the film, which we all need to remember, college football and pro football has been doing this stuff for years and doing it successfully. Um, but having the ability to watch a game and watch a full game and then watch it again and then watch it a third or a fourth time, whereas before you might see that young man on three different occasions for three separate halves. And you're making your evaluation. Yes, it's in person, but you're making that evaluation off of what could be no more than an hour of lacrosse. When with film, you can actually watch a full game, whether it's, a, you know, a 40 minute or 50 minute, you know, fall ball or summer game uh, or a full high school game. You can go back and watch it again. 
you can write down your question marks for a young man and then go back and watch it again and then talk to the high school coach, talk to the club coach. Uh, I, I just think there was an opportunity here to delve deeper into spending more time on each individual. Um, I also think it was an opportunity to spend more time uh, having your assistants do the same. How often, you know, did you go out and watch a game or a kid and have your assistant never have seen him play? And we all know that, you know, two sets of eyes are better than one and three are better than two. Uh, so this way, you know, everybody has a chance to weigh in uh, on the evaluation portion of things. Um, everybody has a chance to weigh in on, you know, the, the character of the young man because you have a little more time to get to know him and you can do a little bit more getting to know him through the Zoom calls. Um, so while I, I, I'm a huge believer and a fan of the in-person uh, evaluation, and I do think, you know, it, it's at moments a little more challenging on film, I, I do think it's an opportunity to do more, um, you know, and, and gather more information. As coaches, we're information people. You know, you don't, uh, you don't prepare for a game by watching one film. If you've got 10 films, you watch all 10 probably 10 times. Um, if you've got five films, you watch all five, you know, 10 times. Whereas, you know, with the evaluation in person, you didn't get to watch these guys maybe as much as you wanted. Uh, so I, I think that's the positive of all of it. Sure, there's the negative of not being up close and personal and, you know, getting that feel for the size. But then we're forced as coaches to do more homework to speak to more people, maybe involve the football coach, uh, you know, the, the basketball coach, the counselor, uh, a little bit more. So rather than look at this as a negative, I've actually looked at it as a positive. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you're going to get more information. And listen, net-net, you want both, right? Right. Well, I think it's also important to understand what you're evaluating them against. And one of the things we've tried to do here at, at LSG is, is provide coaches with this apples to apples comparison, you know, give them an opportunity to say, okay, what am I watching here? I've got, you know, I've got six games of this kid against, you know, five, you know, five other really good teams, um, you know, and then another, and then a playoff game. Uh, I've got six teams I can watch. And relatively speaking, I know that all six of these teams are filled with high quality players. So you're afforded an opportunity to compare apples to apples. And you know, when you see a kid run by someone or defend them really well, you have a better sense for actually who and what they're playing against at a level of competition. And, you know, some of what we're doing there, I hope has helped the college coaches in these evaluations. Totally. Was well, a great segue. Let, let's talk about legendary sports group. Talk about your relationship with coach Cottle um, going back to when you were his assistant and all the way to now where uh, you guys have had an opportunity to work together and, and work for uh, Brendan Kelly, uh, former owner of the Bayhawks and owner of SmartLink. I uh, would love to hear about what you guys are doing, what your plans are, and, um, and uh, all of it. Sure. So I appreciate you asking. Uh, you know, at, at the age of 52, it was a, uh, you know, a big halt to what I was doing. I've been coaching for, uh, you know, 30, 30 years. And, uh, you know, as I told someone the other day, my internal uh, alarm clock is uh, is going crazy right now because everybody's out with their teams. And this is the first time for me in 30 years that I don't have my own team I'm a part of. So, um, 
you know, I learned a long time ago from Bill Belichick that listening is critical. And he's one of the greatest listeners uh, that I've ever been around. I think it's one of the reasons why he's so good at what he does. Uh, he's willing to gather information and learn from everybody. Uh, so when, you know, when, 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 I, when I left Hopkins, um, you know, and I was looking around, uh, Brendan Kelly called me and Coach Cotto called and asked if I'd be interested in, uh, you know, working with their event group. Um, you know, and, and your, initial, uh, your, your initial reaction is that's not what I want to do. You know, I want to coach. Um, but again, it's important to listen. So I actually took the time, went down and visited with coach and Brendan on his boat and uh, spent a great afternoon with two wonderful guys. Uh, I got to know Brendan a little bit better. I had known him before. Uh, bright, bright guy, uh, really an outside the box thinker, uh, not afraid to take some risks, um, calculated risks. Um, and and a, a real interesting approach to business. Uh, so I, I looked at the the chance to meet with him to, was to learn uh, a little bit, you know, about his leadership style, you know, and what has made him successful. And after spending the day with him and Coach Cottle, um, you know, I was intrigued by what they're doing. I felt like what they were doing would allow me to remain connected uh, to our game, uh, and, and equally as important, would allow me to remain connected. Uh, maybe more importantly, to the most important classes uh, that would impact recruiting uh, both, you know, this year and in the years to come. Uh, and, and I was excited ab about that. I got the chance to remain connected with the 22s of my son's class. Um, and then, uh, you know, with Five Star, I got to spend three months watching films, uh, recommendations, and evaluating the class of 2023s. So quite, quite honestly, I spent every bit as much time evaluating 23 players, you know, as I normally would have in a recruiting process. Uh, and now I've begun that process with 24. So, you know, they offered me an opportunity to, to remain connected to the important parts of the game, uh, to, to stay in touch with college coaches. It's really afforded me, Jamie, and it, it's a mistake that I made as a head coach. Uh, it's afforded me an opportunity to develop even stronger relationships with the club guys uh, and get to know them a little bit better. Um, not that we didn't use them, but I'm not sure I used them to the capacity uh, and developed the relationship as strong as I could have. And I've worked to do that. And, and hopefully, you know, these opportunities that Brendan and Coach Connell have provided me, uh, you know, if I get back into coaching, which is what I'd like to do, um, actually benefit me a great deal. Um, so, it was a great meeting. I liked what I had. I heard from them. Uh, they gave me the chance to remain connected on a number of different levels. Um, and I can't tell you how exciting it is for me to be back in an office with Coach Cottle. Um, as you mentioned, I did that with him at Loyola, at the time Loyola College, now Loyola University. And, and I'll never forget the many times Coach would call us into the office and say, okay, you draw up an offense and say, do me a favor, defend this. So, you know, you get your pen out, you defend it. And he'd look and you go, oh, that's perfect. That's just what we want you to do. Here's what we're going to do. And, you know, then you'd get the chalk back and say, okay, coach, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to do this. And then he would look at you and say, oh, even better. Um, <laughs> and I learned that I never had the chalk last with coach. Um, probably still hasn't changed much. But to sit and talk with him uh, about offense, uh, about his view of defense, from the offensive side, um, at the end of the day, Jamie, 
it's still two guys that love coaching, love teaching, uh, love leading, sitting in an office across from each other. And, and the dialogue, you know, goes from recruiting, uh, from talent of club players, uh, events that we're running, uh, different high schools, leadership uh, uh, beliefs and philosophy. So I, I really blessed to, to daily be around a guy who I think knows the game extraordinarily well, has been successful at the high school, college, uh, pro and international level, um, and, and knows it really well. And, uh, you know, I get to pick his brain about some of the things that he used to do uh, at Maryland and, uh, you know, told me about their, their, I think it was cheeseburger Thursday or cheeseburger Wednesday and just a time where they'd all get together and, uh, you know, they take their hats off and they weren't really lacrosse coaches and players. They were just a family sitting down to have a burger together. Um, just lots of little tidbits like that. So it, it's been great. I'm very grateful to be a part of a team that, uh, likes to compete, um, wants to put a product on uh, out there that's, you know, high quality. And I get to work with great, you know, great leaders in, in Coach Connell and uh, and Brendan Kelly. So great. And you you mentioned that you'd like to get back into college coaching and that this, the um, element of the recruiting piece of this is going to keep you like right on the cutting edge of knowing who everybody is. Uh, you sit across from one of the great coaching minds in the game. Um, how else are you sort of keeping that uh, saw sharp? Well, you know, it's amazing what people will talk to you about and how many will talk to you when, when you're not coaching against them. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know it all too well. And, uh, you know, when you're competitors, there's always that, you know, I can't offer too much information. I can't tell them too much and I can't ask too much. And I, I've been able, uh, you know, I'm still uh, on the IMLCA board, which I'm really thankful to, to J.B. Clark and now Bill Tierney, who's the new president, to remain on that. So I stay connected to the, to the game that way. Uh, I know all about what's going on there. I'm still the liaison for the IMLCA uh, with the NCAA Rules Committee. So I'm still involved, you know, in that regard as well. Um, but it's been great to pick up the phone and call another coach and just do exactly what you're, you and I are doing right now. Talk about philosophy, talk about culture, uh, talk about, you know, the changes that they're seeing uh, in kids today and how they're reacting to it, um, how they're dealing with administrative stuff, uh, what they're doing in recruiting. Uh, it's been really exciting to, I mean, I got a notebook and Jamie, if I told you it's filled and another one's filled and another one's filled, that would be a, a, an understatement. Uh, I, I grab a, a tidbit, a quote. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that it's not always what you teach, but what you emphasize. And, uh, you know, hearing what different guys emphasize, and they may have the same beliefs in me but as I do, but they emphasize certain things a little differently. Um, you know, I've been hugely uh, inquisitive about culture and how, you know, standards and uh, – you know, the, the culture that, that these coaches are trying to create and I've come to, to, to be a believer that culture isn't a word, it's an action. Um, you know, I've enjoyed that part of it. And it's really helped me to kind of think about, you know, the next stop and how I would like to approach that. And, uh, you know, the changes I would like to make both in myself uh, as a coach and, and my approach and, and, and how we do things. So it's, I, I've stayed 
as connected as I can be. Um, and now as the spring approaches, uh, I'm going to visit with a couple of colleges as you've, as you've done. And, you know, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to watch Syracuse practice. Yeah. You know, I've been a competitor of theirs for almost 30 years everywhere I've been and still don't know what a Syracuse practice is like. I'd love to learn. I'd love to look at a Salisbury practice. And, you know, Jim Berkman, you know, has been an icon in Division Three and has had tremendous success. And then the work go up the street, you know, and, and, and maybe spend a little time with Charlie Toomey and they do an unbelievable job in their clearing game. Um, so, you know, it, it's been, uh, for me, it's the approach has been opportunity, 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 and and take advantage of them and, and, and gain as much inside information as I can and take the things that I like and believe in and believe are helpful and, put them on one in one place and the other things maybe I don't or don't think fit and put them in another place. But it's been, uh, it's been a group, very educational uh, time in my life. So cool. Give me uh give me a, your thoughts on how coach Belichick, who I know, you know, you, you uh, referenced a minute ago has had an impact on you and the way you've approached this, uh, this, this new opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting who you hear from when, uh, you know, you have a change in your life. And, and I've heard from, you know, some great people, you know, that have you know, been through what I've been, that have just, you know, had to quickly change direction. Um, you know, and I'm thankful for, for not only their, their thoughts and their support, but also, you know, their experience and then their, their um, insight as to how they handle things. You know, and Coach obviously has been a, a, a great friend and, uh, you know, I've learned so many things from him. And, you know, one of them is, you know, we all need to expect adversity. Adversity is a part of our lives. It's, it's, it's a part of our personal lives. It's a part of our professional lives. Um, you know, it, it's everywhere around us. And we're defined as men by how we handle those adverse circumstances or those adverse moments, you know, and uh, from him, you know, I learned, look, you, 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 you look at it, you evaluate it, you look at what went well, you look at what went wrong, you look at why things happened, you look at how they unfolded, and you learn. And, you know, that's, you know, Coach, uh, as I may have mentioned, I think one of the greatest skills he has is, is, is a listener. Um, he's a, as observant um, and inquisitive a man as anyone I've ever met. And I've tried to take that approach here and just look at this as not a negative, but as a, a positive for me to refocus, reevaluate, reinvent, um, and, and then also reassure myself of many of the things that we had done that were so successful, um, you know, and take those with uh, with with me. Um, I, I really looked at it from from that point of view, and he's been extraordinarily helpful in the you know look, put your head down, and 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 evaluate. Watch, listen, learn. You know, what's the what's the uh, uh, definition of insanity? You know, continuing to do the same thing and expect a different result. Right. Um, you know, so this is an opportunity to, to look at all the results and say, okay, you know, how did we get there? And how could we have gotten a better result? And moving forward, how can we assure that we would get a better result? So, you know, Jamie, as challenging as it's been, it's been a lot of fun on on one hand. Yeah, I bet. And and like you said, you know, you're turning this into an opportunity, and and uh, that's just 
that's the way it goes. And to be, have yeah. the opportunity to reinvent yourself and do some different things, I man, I know what it's like, and it can be really fun. And you're gonna find, you're gonna figure out what works for you, and and you're gonna be passionate. You're a hardworking guy, and you're a passionate guy. You're gonna make stuff work, uh, regardless yeah. of what that is. Yeah. You know what? None of us are the best version of ourselves yet, and I don't know that we ever become that. What we are, what we all are, is a work in progress. And at the age of fifty-two, you know, I'm learning things and. And, and I'm more open-minded to things now. And the beauty of it is people are more willing to share now um, because of the role I have. So um, like you said, it's just a, it's, it's a, a challenging moment turned into a, a positive learning experience. Well, all those people that are willing to share know that you're probably more willing to share now too. No doubt. About, I, I would tell you, no doubt about that. It's amazing how guarded you are about your thoughts on a player uh, your thoughts on either defense, offense, um, whatever, you know, whatever it might be schematically, culturally, um, you're, you're, you're right. And, uh, you know, if they're going to offer, you gotta, you have to reciprocate. And it's been, uh, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, the, the guys in the coaching profession have been great. I've learned, uh, I've gained an awful lot of respect for many of my peers. Awesome. Well, I've got a, I got a cool topic for you. Something I'm going to share with you, um, after our call, I'll send this to you, but I, I had my uh, editors, uh, Rocco Romero, you know, and, and, and another, sure. uh, another young man who's an intern. Um, they broke down every defensive player in the PLL and gave me their defensive one-on-one -on -one reps in a game. So like Whips, wow. Edwards, you can look at like Jared Apple's matchup and, and the shorties. And interesting. Looking, at it, and looking at it that way is so interesting because, you know, usually – we think about a matchup, of course, we've looked at like, you know, the Lyle Thompson, Tucker Durkin matchup. But usually when you think about matchups, everyone's kind of thinking about the offensive guy. And I wanted to look at just what these guys are doing on defense and seeing the techniques that they actually use and how they might differ from what we teach versus what they do. Looking at the shorties, fascinating the way that those guys play. I mean, honestly, like those guys, guys like Jake Bernhardt, ridiculous in the way that they're able to move, get pieces of you, uh, pick you up at different parts of the field and the way they shade you or don't, the way they run with you, the when they jack you, when they don't. Um, so uh, anyways, I, I, I'm gonna share that with you. I think you'll really like it. That's really interesting. You know, it, it's funny, we used to do that. Um, Bill Duan was great with film. And uh, back before, um, you know, we could share things on iPads or, or we, weren't, we weren't quite there yet. You know, it was the old uh, uh, DVD and uh, guys would come into the locker room and there would be a stack of DVDs and one might say number 20 and number 22. And they were the individual films of the next opponent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're talking about breaking down the defense and, and really, you know, defenders have as many tendencies as offensive guys do. We all as humans have them. And, and I'm a big believer, you know, stats tell you a lot. I'm a big believer in statistics. But if you take the time to watch, you can find those tendencies. So we, we did that uh, with the Powell brothers, you know, and I use them as an example. I have great, great respect for Casey, uh, Ryan and, and, and Mikey. And uh, we watched Mikey Powell and we broke down every one on one. So every dodge that he made to the goal in the season that we were preparing for him. So, you know, let's just say it was Mikey Powell's senior year. Every game leading up to our game, we broke down every single dodge that Mike made. 
And like you, when you watch them one after the next, after the next, after the next, you start to see a pattern. You start to see a tendency. So Mike, you know, when he went left-handed, rarely turned the corner left-handed and rarely inside roll. But what he loved to do was when he changed direction, he loved to look inside or look through. You know, so for us, it was a key that, you know, we really wanted to be slow to slide when he when he changed direction on that, you know, through that two position because he was looking to feed inside or, or skip through more than he was looking to, to, to score. And then when he came right-handed, Anytime he went wide outside the hash marks, nine out of 10 times, he was looking to dip back underneath you. Uh, anytime he came in tight, he was looking to quick change of direction and inside roll you. So, you know, for me, like, like you, um, I think you and I share uh, a similar love for the, 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 the smaller details and the technical parts of the game. Um, I would love to, to see that. And uh, oh, you, you can learn a lot from watching these guys and, you know, you know, it's funny. You talked about the short sticks. I, I think back, I think of evaluating guys in high school and, and how easily some of the guys that we recruited over the, you know, the years, um, how, how well they defended and how easily they defended in high school. You know, when they got to college, it was like, what happened? These guys can't defend anymore. And I, I think some of it is in high school, they were able to just play. Yeah. You know, obviously, they uh, oftentimes they were better athletes than some of the guys they were playing w- with. But when they got matched up against a better player, you know, they just played. We didn't overburden them with, with, with certain techniques. We didn't, you know, overburden them with things to think about. And, oh, my God, I got to get my feet here and I got to get my body here and I got to give this much ground. And if I'm in this position, I do this and. You know, and I, I, it's been really enjoyable to think about and talk with other people, you know, about those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Jake Bernhardt. There are some really spectacular athletes in the PLL and watching how they defend uh, with the short stick and how they defend, you know, in, in front of the goal um, is, is really uh, something I've enjoyed. I, I'd love to, to talk to you more about it. Yeah, it's, it is, it is really, it is really interesting. You know, when you talk about like um, when kids just play um, and we think about that as coaches and we want to like teach things because we know that there's things that work. Um, and yet we also know that you can't like think and play at the same time and play well, you know, and you were, you had to have been as good of an example of that as, as there ever was. And we all are whenever we're in that zone, like the quote zone. Have you ever heard of a book or read a book called the inner game of tennis? I have not unbelievable book, uh, massive impact on me. I read, I read it, um, just recently, um, Mikey Thompson, uh, head coach at CNU, uh, Christopher, New- Christopher Newport actually gifted it to me on an audible. I actually have to confess. I didn't read it. I listened to it, but I'm going to get, <laughs> to right. I need to underline some things. You, you, you got, you got the gist of it. I'm sure, <laughs> but it's, it's phenomenal. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail on it right now, but what it's really all about is tapping into the way that we learned our natural learning style of how we learn things when we were when we were learning to to walk or to talk in which there wasn't like a judgment on whether you fell down and you weren't getting pissed at yourself if you missed a step you didn't even think about it you have no idea how you learned how to walk and talk but there's like a there's like almost like an operating system in your a natural operating system that will take you to where you want to go 
And if you can allow that to operate, that's called being in the zone. And uh, right. that there's a way to tap into learning and awareness as it relates to all the observations that you've talked about and studying and looking and seeing what happened and through film, unbelievable way of doing it. But in the end, everybody does something a little bit different. And, and every great player you've ever coached or watched, they don't do anything purely textbook because there is no textbook. Um, and so anyways, I think you'll find it really interesting and I'm happy to share it with all the listeners on here. Will Corgan also um, called me up and was like, Jamie, have you read this book? You got to get this book. And it's really neat. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, I, and I'll get that book. Um, I came across a quote not long ago, which really made a lot of sense. And it, and it basically, to, to, to paraphrase it, says they're not, they're not going to necessarily remember what you said, but you are, they are going to remember how you made them feel. You know, and when you start to think about that and you start to think about coaching, uh, recruiting uh, and relationships and, and, and the things that we say, for me, uh, that's, a, you know, it's a pretty profound quote in that, you know, they're not going to remember as much of what you said as much as they're going to remember how you made them feel, you know, and, you know, what's the best way to get the best version of a player? You know, and is it is it constantly telling them what they're doing, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, or is it how you made them feel? You know, and uh, I think there's, I, I think oftentimes, in particular now over the last six months with so much time on my hands, striking that balance between too little, too much, too much negativity, too much positivity. You know, and I think there, you know, there can be too much of, of one or the other. And what's the right balance? And each individual is a little bit different than, than the next. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's just interesting stuff to, to consider, um, you know, as you're trying to find the best way to do what we do, which is coach. And the interesting thing in this book, too, is it talks about, you, you know, not only are, is too, one or the other too much, you actually, when you're in the zone, it's neither. You're not pumping yourself up, nor are you getting down on yourself. You're literally just aware of everything that's happening around you. You're not judging it. You're just aware of it, and you just do what you do. I wanted to, on the topic of um, these defensive breakdowns, um, I wanted to talk a little defense with you, and and um, I, I haven't had time to go through all of them. I actually did a Zoom call yesterday with with uh, Lars Tiffany, and we were kind of watching some film together, and we were, we were really kind of more focusing on the shorties. Um, and looking at what they do. But I, I want to talk a little bit about Tucker Durkin. Um, and um, I am really fascinated with the way he plays. And I wanted to, first of all, get your opinions on what makes him special and what you've kind of learned from him and then how that sort of relates to how you believe, you know, you would teach uh, or do teach one-on-one -on -one defense. Sure. Well, you know, I had, a, I, I had the privilege of coaching Tuck for four years um, and we had a very unspoken relationship. Uh, a lot of a lot of things were done by looks and gestures, and uh, or maybe lack thereof words. Um, but you know, he he was quite the the talent. And you, and you ask, you know, what made him so good? I, I think number one, what made him so great was his desire, not only to be great. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people that want to be great. But it was more his not willingness, but his wantingness to do what it took to be great. You know, and, and, and there are lots of people that say, oh, I want to be great. And then when it comes time to doing all those things it takes to be great, they're just not 
they're not, not willing to do it or they do it willingly. When Tucker was a guy, you never you, you never had to encourage him to do more. And quite frankly, had, there were maybe moments where you had to kind of pull the reins back a little bit and say, hey, you know, let, let's not overdo it here. Um, so he was constantly searching for the best way to do his job. Um, I think a great player always has a, a, a sense, a little sense of arrogance or a high level of confidence. And Tucker is everything but arrogant, but he's a very confident guy. Uh, and I believe that confidence comes from his preparedness. Um, you know, one of his gifts was his desire to, to, to prepare, to, to watch film, uh, to break his opponent down, um, to ask questions, you know, and say, coach, what do you think of this? And, and I, I, I hearken back to uh, last season when he was covering Grant Emmett, who, you know, is a terrific player in his own right. You know, he's, uh, he's really special. And uh, I had a chance to actually coach against him for a number of years at, at Penn State and, and, and see him up close and personal. You know, when Tuck texted me, he's like, well, I got to play him. And what do you think? Here's what I'm thinking. Here's, you know, how I'm going to approach him. What did you see when you coached against him? And what are your thoughts? You know, and I'm telling you that less to, to talk about what we talked about, but more, uh, more about the fact that he was searching yeah. for information. He was, he's constantly looking for the best way to do things. Um, you know, he, there are, he, there are no excuses, you know, Tucker, when he plays has put the time in to the point where there are no excuses. So for him, he didn't get beat because he wasn't prepared. He didn't get beat because he hasn't worked on his footwork. He didn't get beat because he's not strong enough. You know, Tucker has prepared himself well enough to not only achieve success, but to expect success. And then when he maybe doesn't have it, he either made a mistake, and I often think good offense is a lot of times bad defense, but he either made a mistake or the guy he's playing with made a really quality play, and, and that happens. So his uniqueness, Jamie, is his, you know, he, he offers no excuses. He puts himself in a position where he does everything he has to do wantingly to prepare and feel like, he has every right to expect success. And more times than not, he, he, he's shown he can achieve it. Totally. I, I don't know Tucker very well. Um, I've been a, a big fan of his game. Um, I met Tucker one night after he presented at the IMLCA Pro Night a few years back. And uh, we were at that Irish pub and just hanging out. And I was like, man, I really enjoyed what you were what you're talking about. And, and I was just asking him questions and he was giving me really, really good answers. But at the end of every single one, it was like, but I don't know, in the end, I just pretty much F you up. I pretty much F people up. <laughs> and it was like literally like four or five times. He's like, but in the end, I pretty much just going to F you up. And um, so first of all, there's an edge to that. And by the way, his highlight video, if people out there that haven't Googled Tucker Durkin highlight high school highlight video, I mean, you'll see what I mean. The guy like literally has a, has an attitude that like you're just talking about that is just such a winning attitude. It's phenomenal. Yeah, he plays a little differently now than he did for us, um, you know, and uh, he's a, he was a little more, I would say, in control when he played for us. And, uh, you know, given the college game, he had to play that way. 
Uh, and given the pro, day, pro game, he can play the way he's playing now. Um, you know, but we, when you have a guy like that, Jamie, whether it's on offense or defense, um, you know, they earn the right to do more. They earn the right to, 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 to venture outside the box a little bit more than, than maybe some others. And, you know, Tucker was a guy that was like that. You know, you, you look at him and you go, okay, well, that's not really what we're going to do with everybody else, but you've shown the ability to do that. And, and I would say I, I was fortunate and blessed, you know, that I had coaches like Don Zimmerman and, and Bill Tierney um, that, that they let me do maybe a little bit more. Um, and I'm hopeful that I earned that rope. Uh, but, you know, with great players, uh, what, what, what did they say? The only one that defended Michael Jordan was Dean Smith. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we all as coaches have a little bit of that in us. And you look back and you go, well, we could have let that guy go a little bit more. or We could have given that guy offensively a little bit more freedom to be creative. Um, we all have that in us. And quite frankly, it's something we can all learn from Roy Simmons Jr. Um, I th- I, what was his greatest strength? Uh, I thought it was not only his relationships with the guys, but his ability to be courageous and allow them maybe to do more and do do more than other people were certainly doing at that time in our game. No doubt. Um, speaking of which, we're going to have you. Uh, Bobby told me that he's going to get you come on coming on for a uh, a webinar breaking down the '89 championship Syracuse Hopkins game. Um, give us some insights, go back to relive what wasn't the result you would have wanted, but you were a part of one of the greatest games in NCAA lacrosse history. And um, really excited to, uh, to be able to see that. I'm sure people will be fired up to hear some of those insights where you were able to use some of your creativity along with Volks guarding the Gate Brothers. Yeah, I, know, I, I don't know that you ever decided over something where you, you weren't successful, meaning you didn't win. Um, and at the end of the day, that... Uh, that game ended my college career. Um, I will say this, however, I, I, I walked off that field uh, feeling great about the men that I played alongside and the brotherhood that we developed. Um, you know, and that on that day, um, you know, we gave everything we had. I mean, if you look at those two rosters, um, you know, and you just think about how many All-Americans were on that field, how many first-team All-Americans eventually were on that field. Uh, how many, uh, you know, defensive or players of the year or the attackman of the year. I think if you look at Syracuse's roster, um, it was Greg Burns, Tom Marichek, and John Zilberti. And I think at one point in time of every one of their careers, they earned attackman of the year, the, Turn- the Turnbull Reynolds Award. You know, that's uh, – maybe it's just the, uh, the Turnbull Award. But that, that's phenomenal. They had literally – in my opinion, the best player to ever play the game in Gary Gate. And what was it, 1A and 1A and a half? Um, You know, in Paul, Paul, and then they had Pat McCabe, who was defenseman of the year, and they had Matt Palum, you know, and then then we had, you know, guys like Joe Rezapak. It was, you know, uh, the the media painted it as, you know, uh, the, the freewheeling, fun, exciting, you know, Syracuse fast break lacrosse and the disciplined, uh, you know, boring Johns Hopkins lacrosse and, you know, North versus South and good versus bad. And it, it had all the pageantry that, you know, some of these major college football rivalries had. Um, 
And it was at a time where lacrosse was just starting to boom. And, and you know, it, it just happens that on the, 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 high, the greatest stage of our game, you had some of the greatest players and uh, some of the most co- contrasting styles. And you had a one goal game that came down to a shot with literally one second left. Um, you know, what more could, could a fan ask for? And, you know, while again, I'm never thrilled to, to remember the, the memory of, uh, you remember a loss. Right. Um, I do feel privileged to be a part of a game that so many people reflect on and say, you know what, that changed my feeling toward lacrosse or that, that changed my, uh, my, my career or that got me so excited about lacrosse. I am, I am proud of all of us for being a part of that. So that was the lefty-on-lefty matchup with you and Volks against the Gate Brothers. Yep. Um, I want to hear your opinion on V-hold versus cross-check hold and all that goes along with that because lefty-on-lefty was was an advantage for you guys, probably for partly for that reason. Yeah, with those guys it was. Um, you know, I think, like a lot of things, Jamie, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize. And if you say, well, lefty on lefty is, is, is the only way I want to play this. And I remember we were playing Oliver Marty, who is a, a great player at Brown. And I believe Oliver was a lefty. And, you know, it wasn't good for us to put a lefty on Oliver because he was great against that cross-handed V-hold. Um, so I, I think it goes, you know, matchup to matchup, player to player, or individual to individual but what I would say on the, I guess, on the subject of V-hold or, uh, or uh, you know, cross-check or, or backside hold, I, I, I've over the years become a believer it's all about where, you're, you're, uh, where your feet are and where your hips and your, your, your chest are um, and that that's more important than where your stick is necessarily. Um, you know, I know for me, I, I was never comfortable in a V-hold. If you ever watched me play, uh, in my four years of college, and I think I played five years after, so a, a rather short career. If if I wasn't comfortable in the field, I was going over your head because I I just wasn't comfortable the other way, uh, or I would hold you backside. Um, and I I think the way we've taught it is there there are time and place for everything, and ideally it's more about your footwork, it's more about your body positioning. But you know, if you want to get ball pressure. You're not going to do that with your stick behind a guy. And if you're covering a feeder, well, how, you know, how, how successful are you going to be if you're locking up with a guy and your stick's behind him and he's got the freedom to look and his hands free? So, again, I think it has to do with uh, specific matchups. But in general, in general, um, I think comfort is crucial. You know, you got to be comfortable doing what you're doing. And if you're not comfortable – you play slow. If you're not comfortable, uh, you, you can't play aggressively. Um, and if you're not comfortable, you're, 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 you're going to wind up overthinking it. And I think being comfortable with the te- techniques that different guys are using, I mean, like, like Tucker, I'm, I'm Tucker was comfortable doing certain things. And as a coach, I was comfortable allowing him to do that, but I wasn't necessarily comfortable with other guys playing the way he, he, he did. So I think it has a lot to do with that. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, answer this question. Uh, why is it that everybody, if they were going to go against Dave Petramala back in the late 80s, early 90s, that you would say, listen, you probably don't want to go lefty on him? Why was well, simple? 
it's a simple answer and it's got nothing to do with David Petromala and everything to do with a checker. And normally when you, when you go to the strong hand hold, which is that V hold, that is where a checker has more checks. So you can poke check, you can butt dig, you can go over the head, you can back, you know, you can back check around the neck, you can back check around the, uh, around the, uh, you know, the small of the back. You can, you know, throw a, a butt end wrap. Most checkers, checks come from their strong hand hold, meaning that V hold. If you take them to their open hand hold, which, you know, is that cross check hold, you now begin to really limit their ability to be checkers. You can slap, you can chop behind the neck, but, you know, you're, you're starting to take away a great many of the things that a, a checker would use, you know, in his, uh, I, I guess, his repertoire of, uh, of checks. So I've always believed that you take a checker to his, uh, to his weekend hold. And I know I hated it. I know guys I played with that were checkers hated it. And, uh, you know, that's what we would teach our guys to do if, uh, unless they were good enough to just go straight at them and beat them with their strength. That's right. Uh, well, I just, I, I, I was uh, glad to hear your uh, answer on that and just really wanted to share because, of course, I, I, I knew that. Um, and I actually kind of have a philosophy that, you know, that the V-hold allows players to naturally learn how to be checkers just simply by having your stick in front instead of always bumping guys. And, and it allows you to get a ding-dong, allows you to get a can opener, it allows you to figure out how to apply that ball pressure left on left, right on right doesn't mean that it's uh, better or worse, really. It's just different. And it's something that I think people did get away from um, through really, th I think through the whole Princeton defense and like, Hey, let's not check. Let's just like play position with our feet. Let's just slide and recover. Um, I think lacrosse has changed a lot, which leads me to my next topic, which is how have you seen offenses change and how has that sort of changed your defensive philosophy over the course of time? Yeah, so, you know, you, you, you got to think about where you came from. And where I came from was, you know, the Bill Tierney School of Defense when he was at Hopkins and Fred Smith. Um, you know, and it's funny, you know, Jamie, I go back and I watch some of those films. It's amazing how little we slid back, back in those days. I mean, sliding was at a minimal. And if you did, it normally was a coma slide, a cross-crease slide, yep. you know, and a second slide down the back side. We didn't slide nearly as much to dodge as up top because we were comfortable with giving up shots on the run uh, with, with, with a severe angle, you know, and your goalie having a better sense for where, you know, from a percentage point of view, where the shooter was shooting. Um, and then I look at what Coach Tierney did, which was, you know, he, he took a different tack. Everybody was so comfortable with, you know, being able to get down that alley. So they were practicing shots on the run and improving those. Um, since you weren't coming, they would take their dodges deeper, you know, down into the slot, down the alley, into the defense. And Bill Tierney, you know, a great idea, said, okay, you know, and everybody doesn't think that they pressured a lot. I think they pressured you a ton, but they pressured you differently. And their pressure came from sliding. Yep. And all of a sudden you got to a dangerous area where usually you got to a dangerous area and there was no one there. And now all of a sudden there's someone there immediately. Like 
even before you got there, you know, we call that area, uh, you know, the, the, the porch. You know, the porch is a, a, a place where we're comfortable giving a shot up outside the porch, but anything inside the porch, we're not comfortable. So it's that, you know, 13 to 14 yard area. And all of a sudden, Princeton's sliding to you. And they're sliding early and they're sliding fast and they're extending adjacent or, you know, they're packing it in depending on their scheme and not giving you stuff inside. Uh, you know, I, th I thought it was brilliant. Brilliant. Um, brilliant. And I, I, you know, again, I, no one thinks of pressure when they think of the Princeton defense. I think they put a ton of pressure on you to have to share the ball, move the ball, Boy. score not off the first pass or the second pass, but you had to show you could go three, four, and five, and six passes or two or three dodges into the offense to score a goal. Brilliant in my mind. And then what happened was teams started to play out of a circle and take away that hub, that crease that made so much of the sliding decisions. You know, Bill Tierney started to slide a lot from the crease to behind the goal, the below goal line. Most of us were, were you know, comfortable in coma sliding. We didn't want to leave that most dangerous area, the, you know, the interior of the hub, but he did. And he did it, you know, based off of on-ball positioning and forcing guys to certain areas and playing the percentages that they couldn't see the slide, they couldn't see the open man. So then teams went to a circle and they took away the, the slider and they forced them to play around the perimeter, which changed things. Then teams started to pop guys or fade guys. And in doing that, they forced you to make a decision. Do you go with them and now – vacate the crease and lose your slide and your support or do you hold and now when you slide and they move the ball they're outnumbering you on the perimeter and teams were practicing to beat the sliding defense with ball movement so now we find ourselves in a world of fake sliding and you know it's a it's a progression and you know the more i've thought about this over the last six months the more i think about ball pressure and how important it is to get ball pressure. Um, doesn't mean you're out of control, but getting ball pressure. Um, I, I, I think about fake sliding and how now offenses are so well coached uh, and the skills are at such a high level that you slide, the offense is moving it, moving it, moving it. And next thing you know, you're giving up a shot on the help side of the defense with time and space, which is not what you want your goalie to face. You know, I think a little bit more about the days of we want to get them down the alley and force those on-the-run shots that are, you know, lower angles. And here's the next piece, pushing teams to the middle. You know, Tony Seaman was ahead of his time. And, you know, I, I, I'll never forget being in a meeting, and we were talking when I was his assistant. He's like, well, we're going to push this team to the middle of the field today. We can't. And I was like, we can't do that. You know, and he was look, he looked at me, he goes, why can't we do that? <laughs> I didn't have an answer. The answer was, well, that's because we don't do that. We've never done that before. No one does that. And so to become a believer in it, I would go back and I would watch our films of practice or, or games and how many guys with their weekend could shoot the ball on the run and score. And the percentage was so much lower than a strong hand dodge down the alley. So I, I think you're going to start to see a lot more of that. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more squaring up 
on the midfielders. You talk about the uh, the pro game. I think you see a lot more of that. In order to defend those guys, you got to square up a little bit more. Uh, less overplaying the middle and or, or the alley because these guys are so good and they're able to just run by you and get their hands free that you're going to be forced to slide. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about ball pressure, fake sliding, not sliding, and, you know, pushing the ball to, to the middle of the field. And I think we're starting to see more of that from teams and we'll see even more of it moving forward. Totally. And, you know, when you, if you over, if you overshade somebody, you, you lose ball pressure. That's one of the reasons why squaring them up, you can, you can get ball pressure, you know, with a shorty because they can move laterally and get a chunk of you and start bumping you. And when that happens, that is ball pressure. And that's how shorties do it. You know? Well, you know, again, how you play the ball depends on how you're going to support, how you support depends on how you play the ball. So if you're going to shade the middle of the field and overplay it, chances are you're going to wind up sliding a lot yep. because you've overplayed it. Now that's okay. If that's your choice and you've got a good group that can slide, release, you know, rotate, bump or recover in, in, in a very quick fashion. I always thought, you know, our best defenses when I was at Hopkins and at Cornell was we could recover in one pass. If we could recover in one pass, we had no problem sliding. Uh, you know, if the ball went down the side, we would just, you know, we, we would slide, release, and find the guy, you know, opposite up top. If the ball was thrown back, we'd go inside, bump the inside out, and, you know, in one pass, we were recovered. It's when you start to get against these teams that can and are willing to make the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth or the second, third, and then re-dodge off of the second or third pass, that, that can become really challenging. So, uh, you know, this is, this is interesting stuff. I always enjoy our conversations. Totally. All right, last topic as it relates to these. Uh, Two-man game, the evolution of it, where it's going. I've got my opinions, but I'm really interested in hearing yours. Um, I'm a big fan of it. Um, offensively, I think anytime you bring two defenders together, uh, you force defenders to do things that by nature they may not be comfortable doing. They may not have practiced it a lot. Their own offense may not do it a lot. But you force them, in my opinion, with the two-man game to do two really, really important things that can create problems for a defense. You create conversation or communication. You force the defense to have to have a conversation or communicate as to what's taking place and how they're going to defend it. And then you force them to make a decision. Those are two things that a lot of human beings don't do very well. Yeah. You think about every defense you've ever played against or played with. Was every guy on that defense a great communicator? Heck no. That is something that we all search for defensively is that group that communicates, you know, tremendously. Our 2005 Hopkins team, those guys were awesome communicators across the board. So because of that, we could do a lot more defensively. They were smart. And they made good decisions. So we could be a little bit more complicated. But today, I don't know if you're seeing as much of that. So I am a big believer in a two-man game because you force two defenders to have to communicate, you know, are we jumping it? Are we sliding through it? Are we getting over or under? Um, and then you have to make those decisions as a communicator. And then you have to make them in a timely fashion. It, it, are we in a dangerous area here? And if we're a dangerous area, well, switching could be tough. 
because that'll give him space and let him have his hands free. So doubling may be tough if we're wider because it gives him a little more space to slip and, you know, dump one over the top and throw it behind the back. Uh, so I'm a, a big fan in, in, in our motion offense. When I worked with Bobby, who again is now with you, uh, I always enjoyed that we we didn't run a box offense. I think a lot of people did. We ran more of a box basketball hybrid. Um, yeah. You know, we took a lot of concepts from basketball. Um, you know, if 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 they're getting through, then stick the pick. If they're slip, if they're switching, then slip the pick. You know, different things like that. Um, but I, uh, I I do think our game has evolved and learned a lot from the indoor game, which has come from, you know, Canadians that now are playing the field game and we're seeing them all over the place uh, and having a high level of success. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, from from basketball and, and we're, our, our sport has evolved and, and we're more willing to, to watch, listen, and learn from other sports. So interesting. Def defenders aren't naturally great. Not everyone's great at communicating and making decisions. And I think when coaches are thinking about running two-man games, because I'm, I'm kind of looking at it from the offensive perspective, and I think I hear what you say on defense. I couldn't agree more. And so, therefore, you want to do your two-man games in ways that makes their decisions and their, and their reads and their communication more difficult. So if you know that people want – to jump a pick near the goal line, make that pick a little on that borderline wide enough where they're just not, do I really want to do this? Or if you know they want to go under a pick, set that pick on the wing or reset it on the wing so that if they're going under, you might just shoot the ball. Or if you know that they might switch a pick, slow down. The faster you go off a pick when they want to switch it, the more obvious their decision to switch becomes as opposed to that guy that hesitates in the middle. Also, like from an offensive point of view, in the, when you run the two-man game, it tends to be tighter to the goal. Yeah. And I like I like playing offense tighter to the goal. I like, you know, being able to step off a pick and shoot right away. Or if they switch to step back and shoot. Or if they double and you slip it, you know, now you dump it over to the, to the slip and, you know, they're right there on top of the goal. So not only does it force the defense, the two defenders, to make decisions, but now those other guys on the perimeter or the interior that have to support have to make much quicker decisions, you know, in a very timely fashion, because if they don't, everything's much of it's so tight to the goal that if they're a second late, that's, uh, you know, it's a layup, it's a goal. Like the late great Dave Huntley said, everything that happens outside of about 15 yards is all noise. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was a great one, that's for sure. You miss him. You know, you referenced, you referenced um, Bobby Benson, your former offensive coordinator, longtime 15-year offensive coordinator, is now working with me with JM3 Sports. And um, I could not be more excited nor more impressed with this guy as just a, a great person, an incredibly hard worker. What a pro Bobby Benson is. Yeah, you know, uh, I, knew it, uh, I knew it when we recruited him. Uh, I was at Cornell and we recruited him. And, uh, you know, that, that was one we weren't wrong about. He, uh, I had the privilege of when I left Cornell and went back to, to, to Johns Hopkins, I had the privilege of coaching him for three years. And uh, he is by far the brightest lacrosse player that I've ever had the privilege to coach. And uh, I, I like to think I've had the chance to be around some really special ones. Um, he, he, knows, he knows the game 
Uh, he's extraordinarily cerebral. He's not one of your better athletes. And I think it forced him to be a more cerebral player. Uh, I think his time in soccer, his time in basketball served him very, very well. Um, I think Bobby knows exactly why he was good. I think a lot of great players don't necessarily know why they're good. They just know they're good. Yeah. Um, I think Bobby has a, a, a wonderful approach to the game. It's, it's very analytical, but not overly complicated. Um, you know, when you, when you usually hear analytics, you think complicated. Uh, I think Bobby does a good job of, of separating that. Uh, one of the things I always thought he was terrific at was teaching. Uh, he's a great teacher. Um, and when he teaches it, he teaches it in a fashion where others can understand it. He doesn't overcomplicate his explanations. Uh, he's a part whole guy like I am. And I think like you are, you know, in, in our old motion offense, we spend more time the first week in two on twos and four and fours before we ever put the inside guy in or the guy at X in. Um, you know, he, he's got a great understanding of how to break things down and then, you know, you know, put them in place in a timely fashion and, and bring those parts together as a whole. Um, and there's a reason why he was successful as a player and has uh, had such a, an outstanding uh, coaching career. And uh, someone will be hopefully smart enough to, uh, to swoop him away from you and get him back on the sidelines because he's awful good at what he does. And, and he's even a better human being. Uh, I, I can't say enough about him. Uh, I miss him and I, I love being with him. Yeah, I am. I feel privileged and um, um, certainly psyched to have him helping me work with athletes and work with our coaches and our coaches training program, creating content. I mean, the guy is a hard worker, great dude. So happy. Um, yeah. Patro, thank you so much for taking the time and talking lacrosse and we need to do it more often. Yeah, Jamie, this has been great. It's been uh, one of the better hours of my day. Uh, Coach Cottle is not in town. He's uh, at a, uh, a tournament. So I uh, appreciate you taking taking his spot and, uh, and being my partner in talking lacrosse. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks, Petro. Thanks. Thanks for what you're doing for our game.